Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org. All right, well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to continue our study through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 26 and the man of integrity. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that it is true, that it penetrates into the heart of the matter, and that it helps us, Lord, to walk in your truth, to walk in your ways. So Lord, as you search us and know us today, as we know and open your word, I pray, Lord, that that you would do the work that you promised to do by your word. And thank you for the promise in Isaiah 55 that your word will not return without void, that it will accomplish that which it aims to do. So, Lord, as we look at this great passage before us today, would you help us? Help us to to consider our ways, to consider the way in which we are presently walking with you, and whether we are walking in integrity in all of our dealings before your face or whether we're not. So we thank you, Lord, for this word. We pray, Lord, that you would use it to bring Uh, conviction, to bring comfort, to bring help to us for our life and for our godliness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to Psalm 26. Psalm 26 says this, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. This is the reading of God's precious word. J.P. Hayes made national news in 2008 for breaking a rule. In fact, it wasn't that he broke a rule, it was what he did afterwards. Now, Hayes is a middle-of-the-road PGA Tour golfer after qualifying at, at a PGA qualifying tournament in Texas. He realized that he had just used a non-regulation ball for two strokes. And so he had a decision to make. In fact, he didn't have to say anything at all. He could just let it go. No one filmed it. No one saw it. No one ever knew that he used two shots with a prototype golf ball. 
In fact, it wasn't even his fault. His caddy had made a mistake and handed him this ball. No one would have known, but I would have known. And I have someone, people looking down on me that would have known. So this was a decision I had to make. And so Hayes stepped forward and he admitted his mistake. His integrity came at a price. Not only was he disqualified from the tournament, he didn't earn his PGA card for 2009. And so his decision made him ineligible to play for a full year. Hayes' decision made the headlines because it's such a surprise. Integrity today is in short supply. In sports, Lance Armstrong lied about blood doping. School principals have been caught cheating, doctoring their student test scores. A woman was caught on camera stealing her neighbor's UPS delivery. Parents work the, the numbers they put on their son's financial aid form for college. And on and on we go. Psalm 26 before us today is all about integrity. And David begins and ends this psalm teaching us about integrity. In fact, he claims integrity in verse 1 and commits himself to integrity in verse 11. This focus on integrity flows from the penetrating psalms that come before it. Psalm 15, 1 through 2 asks, O Lord, who shall... O Lord, who shall, shall, shall sojourn in your tents? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Psalm 24 asks the same question. Psalm 23, 3-4 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up a soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You see, the Lord searches our hearts. He, he is looking for honesty both in our private life and in our public life. You see, character is what you do in the dark when nobody is seeing other than God. And we, we today forget that. We think, you know what, I can do whatever I want to do. Uh, take, for instance, if you work from home. Well, my boss isn't going to see. You know, they don't have a way to track uh, if I'm online. And so, you know what, while I'm on the clock, I'm going to go take a nap. I'm going to go out to lunch. I'm going to go run some chores and do some errands and nobody will know. Really. Here's the thing you should know. A lot of companies, they do track you when you're online. And not only that, if you're a Christian, you're, you're, God knows. God sees. God sees when you're in the bathroom with your cell phone doing or iPad or whatever, or you're in a private area. God knows. God sees. God sees whether you cheat on your taxes or... Worse, God sees. In Psalm 26, David claims his integrity and invites God to examine him in verses 1 through 3. And then he offers evidence of his integrity through the company he keeps. He doesn't identify with the wicked men, but loves gathering with God's people for worship in verses 4 through 8. And finally, David is confident that God will reward his uh, integrity with redemption in verses 9 through 12. 
So we're not sure what trouble David was facing when he asked God to vindicate him. He could appeal to God with a clean conscience, though, on this particular matter. And as we come to an end, we're going to see that this psalm is bigger than David's integrity in one situation. It points to the full integrity of the Lord Jesus. So we're going to see this under three headings. First, nothing to hide, nothing in common, and nothing to fear, nothing to hide. See, David comes to God with full confidence because he, he has nothing to hide. He appeals to God to reward him because of his integrity in verse 1. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. The word vindicate is literally judge. The King James Version translates the beginning of verse 1, Judge me, O Lord Jehovah. And so David willingly walks into the courtroom and asks for God to pass judgment on his life. And the word vindicated catches the right sense because David is sure that if God takes up his cause, he will be vindicated. In fact, David is looking for God's approval. What motivates our honesty, our integrity? Now, some people try to live with integrity because they think that if I'm a good person, I'll, I'll merit my way to heaven. Or, or, or if I do good, I'll, 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 my, and my bad will outweigh things in life, and, and somehow I'll be blessed. Some people try to live with integrity because they think that it is best for society. Our city and our nation will prosper when people do what is right, when our word is as strong as a written contract and a handshake seals a deal. In fact, this is the code of the West, and that's a good thing. But the good of society is not, is not whether we shake hands and solidify a deal as the ultimate motivation. Others try to live with integrity so they don't have to worry about getting caught because they're afraid of the consequences. It is wise to think about the consequences of our actions, but that can never be the ultimate motivation for our integrity. You see, for, to the Christian, integrity is a critical thing because integrity is about God. David's basic motivation is that God will vindicate him and bless him for living a good and an upright, a blameless life before the face of God. By faith, you know that God sees and rewards integrity. Paul says this in Romans 2, 6 through 11. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immorality, immortality. He will give eternal life, but for those who are self-seeking, and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, for God shows no partiality. You see, God sees, God rewards. This is our, should be our deepest motivation for integrity. You see, if we honor our word and do what is right, society will benefit. And we're not going to have to worry about whether we're going to get caught doing what's wrong. The great blessing is God's reward. Integrity has everything to do with what we believe about God. By faith, we believe that God sees and God acts. And so we live for his approval. We don't live for the approval of others. We live for the honor of for the glory of our King. 
And that means that our ultimate motivation is, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says. That means that, that, that when we understand who God is and, and who we are in light of who God is, then we will honor him because he alone is worthy of everything. He's worthy of honor. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy. In fact, you know, what's amazing is even Paul, he stops at, 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 after he spends 11 chapters. At the very end of the 11th chapter, he's talked about the great truths of, of, of sin, of depravity, of justification, of sanctification, and, and election, and, and the sovereignty of God. And then what he does at the end is he, he just stops. I think he realizes what, what he's talked about is so amazing. I imagine Paul, at the end of Romans, when he's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he must have just felt so worshipful that he could not help but stop. And for the next three verses towards the end of Romans 11, he just pauses in worship of God. Because God is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy because he's God. Because in and of himself, he is self-sufficient. And we are self-sufficient. And so we need God, not only because we're made in his image and likeness, but we're in such need of the Lord. We're in need of his help to walk in his ways. And this is why the motivation for integrity matters. It matters because God matters. We need to live for the honor and the glory of God. David has a claim to be a man of integrity here, but he doesn't ask God, though, interestingly, to take his word for it. He invites God to test him thoroughly, to test him inside and out, and David has nothing to hide. And so he says in verses 2 through 3, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. And so David submits to God's searching gaze. He invites God to search him with a three-part test. Prove me, try me, test me, verse 2. And by opening up his heart and his mind, David gives God complete access to every part of his inner life. Not that God needs that because he can do that anyway he's god he's god but this threefold testing is thorough in fact god's threefold testing is more thorough than even an airport screening if you can imagine that but this imagery also suggests that god's examination is painful it's purifying in fact the word test it refers here to the process of melting metals so the impurities Float to the top. God may attest your, your life by trials, by fire. And you may be honest and upright at room temperature, but what happens when he turns up the heat? What happens when, when things happen in your life and the, the, the things that are below the surface seem to bubble to the top? One of my, one of my mentors who's now with the Lord used to tell me, Dave, God hand tailors the situations of your life. And what he means is exactly this. He intends to use the situations of your life to turn up the temperature 
And what's going to come out? Maybe you think I'm just making this up, but Jesus repeatedly in the Gospels, one example is Luke 6.45, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, what is really on the inside is going to show itself out. You know, this is why Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, because he knew their hearts. He knew that all the externals of their behavior were, were there behind it. There was no motivation. There was no real heartfelt desire for obedience. And don't you know that God knows your hearts? He knows whether you're obeying out of out of duty or out of delight in him. He knows whether you're treasuring him with all that you are or if you're treasuring yourself. And so God may test your integrity with money, perhaps a painful bankruptcy. He may use your reputation. Will you be godly when somebody slanders you? He may test you with health problems. Will you maintain your integrity when, when your spouse has Alzheimer's or dementia or your or your family member has cancer. Like Job, these tests may be agonizing. They are painful. But this is how God vindicates his people and proves their character to the world. And why would anybody ask for this kind of penetrating, painful testing? The reason is, is because David has the confidence to lay himself before the God he knows. Because he knows who God is. And he says this in verse 3 when he talks about God's steadfast love, his commitment and his loyalty to his people, and he's banking on the faithfulness of God. And the reason behind all this is God is good, and you can trust him. And, the, and one of the big things that you need to get out of this, our time together, is that integrity has everything to do about what you and I believe about God. We will not live with integrity unless we know that God rewards and that God sees. And we will not endure the testing of our integrity unless that we believe that God is good, that God loves us, and that he is absolutely faithful. Yet that's why in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your difficulties, in the midst of the challenges that you face in your life, don't you know that behind them is a God who's good? He's faithful. He's true. He's somebody that you can take to the bank. Titus, Titus tells us that uh, God never lies. 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. That means that how you live before the face of God, it really matters. Every day that we live, every day that we breathe, we we live and move and have our being because of God. And what that means is that all of our life belongs to God. It's always in the presence of God. And that thought alone should, it should sober us to fear God rightly. Rightly, because he is the one who is faithful. He's the one who made us, yes, but he is also the one who knows us. And he's the one who's going to hold us to account. Now David has nothing to hide. He wants God's approval in his life. And so 
he opens himself up to God's penetrating, faithful testing. Next, let's consider nothing in common. Now, David is going to urge for his integrity based on the company he's keeps. He has nothing in common with the wicked, but loves to be with the people of God. And David has turned away from the company of wicked people. Psalm 26, 4-5 says this, I do not sit with the men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. These are the words of, of a man living out Psalm 1. Psalm 1, 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And when David says, I do not sit, in verse 4 of Psalm 26, he does not mean that he will never physically sit with them or eat a meal with them. Sitting with men of falsehood or the wicked in verse 4 through 5 means belonging to them. You identify with them. You want to be like them. You count yourself one of them. You choose to spend your time with them. In fact, let's, let's take this a little further and press it home a little more. The company you keep speaks volumes about your hearts. We gravitate towards the people who are like us. This is why a key measure of our godliness, it starts with the people with whom we identify with. So if you tell me who you're like, I, I will tell you what you are like. Tell me who you want to be with, and I will tell you who you're going to become. And the reason for this is 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. In fact, we can trace sometimes the years that, that seem to be eaten up by the locust to the influence of bad people, to bad music, to, to wasted time. Now, separation is a delicate and it's a difficult matter. Separation is delicate because it can easily lead to pride. We forget that we're a great sinners in need of a great Savior who really bled and died and rose in our place and for our sin. And like the Pharisees, we can begin to assume that we are somehow better than other people who don't go to church. And non-Christians see this superiority a mile away, and it turns them off from Christ. Separation is difficult because we cannot avoid people. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idlers, since then you would need to go out of the world. We would, we would have to close ourselves off from the world to avoid bad, ungodly people. But Jesus has called us to be salt and light in the world. We cannot fulfill the Great Commission if we isolate ourselves from non-Christians. Jesus himself welcomed sinners and sat down with them. He didn't want to be like them, of course. He wanted them to become like himself. He is a doctor who came to heal the sick and, and sinners. He sat down with sinners like Ma Matthew and Zacchaeus and called them to follow him and enter the kingdom of God. Christ did not call us to live in a parallel Christian uh, universe or in a holy huddle in our local churches. We are called to be in the world, but not of it for the sake of the gospel. Aren't you glad for the Christian man or woman whose life has touched yours? 
they came alongside of you and shared Christ with you. They mentored you. They walked alongside of you. See, we cannot avoid other people. We build friendships for the sake of the gospel, but we do not identify with the wicked. These verses can be troubling because David says he hates the assembly or congregation of evildoers. It's not popular to hate anything. After all, there's many bumper stickers who said, no haters. No one wants to be negative. Nobody wants to say they hate anything. The problem is we live in such a politically correct society. And so hatred uh, the problem with this political correction is that hatred is a necessary part of love. If you love your daughter or your or, or your, your child, you're going to hate the intruder who attacks them. If you're not furious at someone who hurts you, you obviously do not love them. The only way to avoid hatred is to be apathetic, just to, just to be laissez-faire, to say what come may come. But if you love somebody, you naturally and necessarily hate anything or anyone that attempts to hurt that person. And this is why Psalm 11.5 says, God's soul hates the wicked. He is adamant and eternally angry with anyone who does evil. His wrath is a natural and necessary part of his love. Imagine if God's heart wasn't roused to anger when his people were hurt, mistreated, or abused in this world. He'd be like a father who doesn't care that his child has been abused. And yet God's love for his people must be matched by his hatred for the wicked. And it's for this reason it is God's glory to hate sinners. He'd be less than God if he was not a God of wrath. His forgiveness would mean nothing if his hatred and his anger were not real. His, his love for his people would, be, uh, would make him a fraud without an equally passionate hatred for the wicked. In this way, if you love God, you're going to hate his enemies. If you love God, you will care when people despise him. They say all sorts of evil against him. They shake their fists against him. <coughs> he is your joy. He is your delight. You see his beauty. You see his goodness. You see his glory. You see his splendor. You long for nothing more than to see the light of his face and to live in his presence forevermore. How can you yawn and even be ho-hum when people lie about him and sin against him. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 139, 21 through 22, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. You are defined by what you love and therefore also by what you hate. If you love this sinful world and its wicked ways, you will hate God because he stands over this world as our judge. And this is why scripture says in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so if you love God, if he's your joy, if he's your delight, you will hate the wicked who turn against him. This doesn't mean that you're going to be unkind, that you're going to be spiteful. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that our Father in heaven is good even to his enemies. Matthew 5.45 says he makes his son rise on the good and on the evil. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, he does good to the wicked because he's good. And as his children, we should do good to everyone. As Christians, we love our enemies so that 
We can live as sons and daughters of God in this world. We do good to everyone, wicked and godly alike. And since we're defined by our love and by our hate, David's hatred for the wicked is balanced by his love for worshiping with God's people. Psalm 26, 6 through 8. I wash my hands in innocence and go around in your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. And so David's offering here is not a sin offering to atone for transgression. It's a thanksgiving offering. Thanks offerings were not required in the law. They were given freely to show love for God and devotion to him. These verses may reflect the way that the Israelites worshipped in the temple, but at the end of the day, this historical reconstruction is guesswork. And more importantly than all of that is David's love for God and love for his people shines through as a mark of David's integrity. His thank offering and his praise testify to his love for God. And in contrast with the assembly of the evildoers, he is in the assembly of the people of God. Because his heart loved God, he gravitated to the company of those who worship the Lord. And now when we take this and we apply it to ourselves, we need to remind ourselves that the church is now the temple of the living God under the new covenant. In Christ, we in Ephesians 2.22 are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so when David says in Psalm 26, verse 8, I love the habitation of your house, the application for us is to love the church. The church is not a building. The walls and the roof are are just a rain shelter. The church is God's people gathering around God's word. Wherever they may be, God's glory dwells in us together by his spirit, by virtue of us being united to him by faith. It is a marvelous thing to gather together as believers and to know the presence of the living God through the preached word of God and the use of the means of grace. And if we love God's people, then, then we're coming to church to, as a priority. The company we keep says volumes to and about our hearts. Parents, your children are learning through the priorities that you have, whether you go to church or not, and whether you're involved in the life of other people. Show them your love for the church by the way you spend your time on Saturday night. Read that Sunday scripture together as a family. Get your clothes ready. Get to bed at a decent hour so you're not tired for the next for church the next day. Sports test our priorities, men. They give us the opportunity to prioritize the worship and the gathering together of God's people. Do not use sports as an opportunity just to show your kids that church doesn't matter, that God doesn't matter. Use sports even as an opportunity to prioritize the worship of God. And then after that, to enjoy. Yes, enjoy the sports. Use the DVR, record it, then watch it later. But prioritize the worship and the gathering together under the Word of God on the Lord's Day on Sunday. We are defined by what we love. If you love God, we will love being among his people. We will identify with fellow believers who want to be like them and choose to be with them. This was a hallmark of David's integrity, and it is to be a mark of believers today. Lastly, 
let's consider the heading, nothing to fear. Because of David, because of his integrity, David had nothing to fear. He could confidently ask God not to judge him along with his enemies. David had separated himself from the wicked in his life. And now he asked God to separate him from them also in judgment. Psalm 26, 9 through 10 says, Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, and whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. In fact, he was so sure that he would come through God's testing with flying colors. And David ends with a strong voice in Psalm 26, 11 through 12, which says, But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. And when we hear David's absolute confidence in these closing verses, it doesn't seem to fit with what we know about his life. He may have been blameless in the specific situation that gave rise to the psalm, but we know that he did not live his whole life with absolute integrity. In fact, even at the end of his life, he disobeyed the Lord by ordering a census of the people in 2 Samuel 24. And from what we know about David's life, this passage could not be about him. And it can't be about us either. If we're honest, we're going to admit that Psalm 26 holds up a standard of integrity that we cannot meet. And yet David was a prophet. He spoke for Christ. And so the blameless integrity of Psalm 26 points to the blameless perfection of the sinless life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the true man of integrity. Psalm 18, 23 through 24 says, Of him I was blameless before him, and I kept myself before my guilt. And so the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands in his sight. And the word blameless in Psalm 18, 23 is the same root as integrity in Psalm 26, 1 and verse 11. Psalm 26 continues to fill out the picture of Christ that has been laid out in the Psalms to this point. If we preach this psalm without Christ, that's going to make this passage just another one about what we can do in our own power. And all we need to do to do this is to tell people to try harder, to work more, to be more, to just feel whatever you feel. But deep down, we know that we cannot possibly be that good person on our own. And we can't possibly, the truth is, be good enough to have the integrity that will survive God's penetrating, painful testing. The psalmist says in Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? In fact, if we could apply Psalm 26 without Christ, we load a backpack of religion on our shoulders that will not bring us any closer to Christ. But if we see that Psalm 26 is ultimately about Christ, then we will preach the gospel. Jesus is a true man of integrity. Jesus is the one man who lived up to Psalm 26 and fulfilled it completely. He had nothing to hide. God tested him at the cross, and he was found blameless. Jesus had nothing in common with the wicked. He praised God in the congregation of the people of God. He had nothing to fear. God did not sweep his life away with the wicked, but brought him back from the dead. If this Jesus is your Savior, then your feet stand on level ground with him. Your life is united together with his. You are his, and he is yours forever. 
His blameless integrity is counted as yours because of the righteousness of Christ alone. The spirit of the true man of integrity is within you, helping you to obey. His life is within you. You have nothing to fear. You see, today, integrity matters. We are living in a time when, oh man, from every quarter of life, integrity is such an issue. And that is why we need men and women who will stand up and who will courageously speak of, of the holy and the perfect and the just and righteous character of our God. And this is what God has called his people to do. He has called us to speak the truth in love without fear and without apology. We are to contend for the truth once for all delivered to the saints. We are to speak up for the honor and for the glory of God. But what this also means is that perhaps if you're not living with integrity, you must repent. If you're play acting, you must repent. If you're just going through the motions and, and you're just saying, you know what, I, I'm going to honor the Lord in these things, but not in all things, you must repent. We must consider our ways before the Lord. This searching God, he, he knows our hearts. You cannot fake him out. Too many Christians today think that they can live however they want to live. And so they do. They think over here, I can, you know, in my business life, I'll, I'll just do whatever I want to and God will bless me. And in my family life, you know, when we have people around, I'll, I'll act as a person of integrity. But integrity is, is being consistent. And behind that is understanding that God is consistent and he's coherent. And so the the way that we live and the way that we speak and the way that we believe and the way that we live before the honor and the glory of God, it really matters. You might think that what's a five-step process to becoming a person of integrity? And even that, the, the passage doesn't give us this. Instead, what the, this Psalm 26 is concerned with is, is with God by through the word of God, searching our hearts by his spirit to see if there is any in any egregious way in us. And if we're honest, there is egregiousness in our hearts. Even as Christians, we have remaining sin or indwelling sin. And what that means is you know the ways in which you, even as a Christian, you sin against your God. And you know that the many ways in which you're self-sufficient, where you're full of anxiety, rather than resting in Christ. You know, if I was to be honest with you, there are so many ways in which I am often so full of anxiety. And what I need the most is to pull away I need to pull away to the word of God, to meditate on it, to study it, to consider what it says. And it's easy to read this passage and say, you know what, I've got this all figured out. Check the list. Check, check, check. And maybe that's your point today, but you would miss the point. 
This isn't ultimately about David, and it's not ultimately about me. It's about our Savior. Jesus was sinless in every way. He did not sin. And that makes him perfectly capable of being our sinless substitute who paid the penalty in our place and for our sin and rose on the third day. And what that means is not only is Jesus the one who saves us, but also he's the one whose pattern and whose life we are to emulate, to pattern our own lives after. This is why Jesus called the disciples in Luke 9, 23 through 24 to count the cost. Count the cost. And Jesus said this over and over in his ministry, right? He told us this because we need to count the cost. We need to take stock. And we need to not be moralistic. And we need to stop being self-sufficient. And so it's easy to read a, a psalm like this or any of the other psalms and think, you know what, what, is that, what does that even have any to do? Maybe I'll just take a verse and, and memorize it. And sure, the psalms are full of great passages like that. But as you read the psalms, as you study the psalms, think about, did David, did the writer, did they fulfill this? Did their life fulfill this? Or, or is it speaking like we're considering about Christ who's to come? And the answer to that in this psalm is we're talking about one in our Savior who is perfect in every respect, who is a model of integrity, who when tempted, he did not succumb. When, when he was brutalized and abused and beaten, he did not mock. He did not call forth his angels to defeat everybody. He suffered and bled and died. He fulfilled the mission for which the Father gave him, which was to die in our place and for our sin, to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. To be, to be beaten and mocked and ridiculed and scourged in our place and for our sin so that we as his people could put our sin to death with the help of his grace and the indwelling presence of his spirits. So integrity, it matters. It matters as how we live before the face of God. It matters what we do because how we live and, and the company that we keep is a reflection of what we actually are treasuring in our life. And this is why God hand tailors the situations of our lives. This is why the heat gets turned up. Because God is trying to see, are we going to honor him? Are we going to truly honor him? Or is it just going to be with just words out of our mouth? Or is it with true heart obedience? Are we going to love him? Are we loving him truly? And this is why Lamentations 3.40 is one of my favorite verses. It says, let us examine our ways and return to the Lord. This is why we talk so much on this podcast about keeping short accounts before God, because it really does matter. It matters that we live, how we live before God. It matters for our life and for our conscience, our our life and godliness. It matters because how we live 
people are going to find out. And behind how we live, is, is, it's a testimony to what we really believe. Because how we live is a reflection of what we really believe. How you spend your money, what the priorities of your life are, the direction and the tra- trajectory of your life. It really matters. It matters for eternity. It matters now. We don't talk enough about this, about integrity, about character. But if you go read the New Testament, and all over the place, Colossians 3, Galatians 5, uh, whole chapters of Ephesians, and like I mentioned, Colossians, and on and on and on, they're concerned with the idea of our character. Even the book of Romans. I mean... It matters because our character is to be formed and grounded in Christ, in the Word. And this is to inform our witness for Christ, for the glory of His name. So perhaps today you're you're struggling with integrity. Look, don't look to yourself. Don't look to your neighbor. Look to Christ. He is enough for you, and he always will be. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded today that integrity really does matter. And it matters because it it demonstrates what we believe in action. So whether we're in business, and we think that we can cheat on a business deal and nobody will know, you know. If we think we can do whatever we want to on our smartphone, you know. If we can, we think that we can say one thing to our spouse and then do another and, and nobody will know, you know. So Lord, as you have searched us and known us today through this word, through our time of study, and you have made plain our hearts before you, Lord, may we do as Lamentations 3.40 says, let us examine our ways and return to the Lord. And may we know, as Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, the heights and the depths and the riches of your love, of the grace of God in Christ, that can pardon us, that can rescue us. Lord, we also pray, 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So we pray, and we thank you, Lord, for the word of God and for the work that you are doing in our lives through the word and by your spirit. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.